great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Scientology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and have you ever wondered what it is that makes a big breach bad? Or who those big data breaches are bad for, or even when they stop being bad? Our guest today will help us consider these sorts of questions. Dr. Maria Grazia Porchada is Assistant Professor of IT Law at Trinity College Dublin. Along with her colleague, Dr. David Wall, she recently presented to the 2021 IEEE Euro Security and Privacy Workshop a paper titled Modeling the Cybercrime Cascade Effect of Data Crime, which provides a very useful framework for understanding the extended harms resulting from cybercrime. There is, of course, a link to that in the show notes. I found the ideas in this paper really interesting, so I asked Dr. Grazia Pachala how she got started and where the focus on data came from. So um, actually it was during my graduate studies, so before the PhD. And at that point in time, I had a very unique opportunity. I had uh, the opportunity to take part in a study tour of the Silicon Valley, where together with other classmates of mine, I could visit small tech firms and big tech firms alike. And one of these tech firms uh, in particular was specialized in, in encryption services. And it was when visiting this firm that I found out that data were an asset, of course. And in the experience of that particular company, governments were not interested in safeguarding data. And that opened up a whole world. And it led me on to further experiences. So, for instance, from there, I interned at the European Data Protection Supervisor or at the OECD I was lucky enough to be to be hired uh, on a short-term project that was investigating law enforcement access to data uh, in the cloud. And by then, I had developed a firm interest in cybersecurity, and particularly uh, the intersection between data protection and cybercrime. I had uh, been able to witness a variety of, of applications, and uh, I was quite interested by the potential overlap between data protection and cybercrime, particularly because we were still living in the aftermath of 9-11 when people were talking about security versus privacy. And I was interested in, in seeing whether there was an overlap and to what extent there was an overlap and uh, when the two instead started clashing. It seems that data is sort of at the centre of your your approach Definitely. Yes, I would say so. It's uh, it's the data. And that's what I'm I'm still trying to explore in all of its different dimensions. I find it really challenging because of, of course, a variety of layers and disciplines are involved in studying data as such, uh, but also extremely thrilling because it gives one the opportunity to bridge concepts and ideas that come from different disciplines he allows one to discover, he allows one to, to formulate new ideas, to find, find out new paths. So I can see myself working in the area of data for, for quite some time. The paper that I wanted to talk to you about, where did that come from? That paper is the second in a suite of papers that was a product of a project funded by the EPSRC in the UK. And that project focused on combating criminals in the cloud. That is also very 
relevant and prominent as well as extremely challenging to study because cloud computing is a broad, all-encompassing word and uh, there are legal definitions, including standards, technical standards, but they do not really help solving the inherent ambiguity of the concept because the cloud includes so many different applications. The one that we're using to record this podcast, the email application used to exchange messages. And it's also part of the very infrastructure of the internet. It can be a target, it can be an enabler. And as a result, it is hard to conceptualize it so as to make it the object of empirical analysis as we want it to do. So we we actually used some of the previous theoretical achievements of my co-author David Wall, such as the cyber leaf, to decide to focus on the side effects or the effects of cloud computing as, as opposed to cloud computing itself as, a, as an environment or as an application. And we came up with a few ideas, such as the reach that the cloud enables a potential offender to achieve, the scale Cloud computing is at the heart of datafication, which is, of course, powering a lot of the internet and the web as we know it today, producing a lot of data and metadata, which is at the heart of innovation. But that is also so incredibly attractive to a variety of cyber offenders. And that means that an offense can be much greater in scale than it was in the past. And also the relational element, the idea that individuals that are loosely connected can come into contact without necessarily being part of an organization. And it all came together in uh, this idea of the cascade effect, which is a way of doing two things, basically. One is highlighting the role that data play in the contemporary cybercrime ecosystem. And two is to show the relational elements that bring about cybercrimes that are powered by data and therefore the cloud, as it were. So the idea was particularly developed in connection with one case study, the Talk Talk hack that happened in 2015 in the UK. This is now a small data breach compared to the data breaches that have happened ever since. But it was quite pragmatic and also useful to study because at that point in time, most of the individuals that were related to it had been apprehended by law enforcement authorities had already been sentenced or were close to being sentenced. And as a result, we had lots of materials that allowed us to study this, this case study. And, uh, and what we were able to show was how indeed individuals that are completely unrelated can, on the basis of a vulnerability and then data, create a massive, what we call a crime frenzy that causes one single action to escalate to the point of creating multiple offenses and victimizations. If you'd like, I can talk a little bit about the stages of the cascade. Sure. I mean, probably the, the, the comparison here would be with some of the frameworks that exist for um, cybersecurity, such as the, the, the kill chain, which has a sort of seven steps from finding out or doing reconnaissance about an organization through to exploiting it. And then the MITRE attack framework, which is 14 stages, but both of those are really sort of focused on one organization and, and understanding defense against 
uh, one attacker from the perspective of one organization, and they're they're technical frameworks for technical purposes. So they sort of they sort of stop at the point of being exploited, and then they don't continue and expand. So yeah, I'd I'd love to hear about the the stages, and I'm very much waiting for stage five. So we'll make our way through, but I'm I'm excited for stage five and stage six. Wonderful. And just as a side, you're quite right about mentioning other models such as uh, the kill chain attack. And there are points of contact between our model and those models. So this is intended to add to the literature and uh, to existing approaches rather than supplanting them. So the, the idea is that at the beginning, there could be just one person. It could be a lone wannabe hacker who identifies a vulnerability in a system and has to decide what to do with that vulnerability. Do they decide to report it responsibly, contact the organization, and perhaps the organization welcomes the disclosure, and then everything ends there. And we don't hear about this ever again. Sometimes, however, the organization itself does not respond favorably to the disclosure. And other times, the individual may not even consider the opportunity to be rewarded for the discovery. And publishes their vulnerability. In this case, the first tipping point is reached. The information is out there and it's up to anybody else to do anything with it. It could be that the researcher thinks about it or the the hacker thinks about it again and, and deletes the information. And then again, nothing happens. You'll never hear of him or her or anybody else again. But then if the information becomes public and it's acted upon, that's where the crime frenzy can be unleashed. All of a sudden, multiple individuals, it could be thousands, like the case of the TalkTalk hack regionally, more than 10,000 attacks or exploits were recorded for that single vulnerability. Try to explore what kind of opportunities lay behind the vulnerability. And if there's nothing of interest, then again, we may not year of this ever again. But a lot of interesting stuff could be made available through this exploit. And that is when we have reached another tipping point. Multiple people have exploited it. There is interesting material, particularly there is information. Now, if this information is uh, monetizable in one way or the other, then we reach stage three. And stage three is the point at which offenders that could be completely unrelated to the people that exploited the vulnerabilities or uh, the person that published information in the first place decide to dump the data, decide to dox or try to hold the organization that would be the primary victim to a ransom. And in case the ransom isn't paid, then dump the data and so on and so forth. Or they could go to another stage, stage stage four, and engage in trading. They could keep trading the data so long as there's a buyer. And at this point, we don't just think of the primary victim, we start thinking about secondary victims as well. Behind that information, behind those data, there are people. And people who are going to suffer as a result of what's being done. At the same time, or as a result of stage four or stage three, there could be individuals who are not necessarily interested in monetizing the data information as is, but may want 
to turn it into something a little bit more valuable, such as stuffing the data. You could do that for a variety of reasons. You could do that because you want to turn it into a product that could allow you to carry out more targeted attacks that could yield more than just the sale of, of the information itself. You could do that for intelligence, of course, as well. You could do it so as to market a refined data set and put that on the market. And this cycle, which, which we call the cycle of monetization, can last endlessly. There are proceeds of crimes, data and information that can be found years after the original breach because they keep being interesting, because they keep allowing other offenders to engage in other forms of, uh, of victimization, such as uh, romance scams, for instance. This is not all. At the same time, there could be other individuals that, especially in cases where an attack such as a breach has attracted publicity, try to make the most of the chaos and the publicity that has been generated. And put-up scams of all sorts, they could just be trying to defraud individuals by contacting them over the phone and posing as agents of the company that was breached so as to offer a reward or compensation for the damage suffered, or could try to exploit people's fears and an anxiety and technical insecurity to further defraud them, to trick them into revealing more information and to, to defraud them in different ways. And finally, there's, a, there's another stage, which we call stage seven, which could see the presence of monetizers such as money mules, where individuals that have been recruited by organized crime-like groups are achieving or are extracting value are turning the proceeds of crime into fiat money that can then be used for other purposes. And the idea of the cascade effect is to show the strong relationship between upstream cybercrimes and downstream cybercrimes, cyber-dependent, cyber-enabled, and cyber-assisted crimes, all collapsing into one single blob that is connected and difficult to disentangle unless action is taken at each and every tipping point in such a way as to block the continuation of the chain. It's such an interesting way of looking at it because it points out that the harms of something like a data breach at a, at a telco like TalkTalk, Talk, the genie's hard to put back in the bottle by simply you know, paying a fine or providing some oversight. It makes the impact of a, of a hack like that a lot more apparent. Absolutely. It's an eye-opener and it shows the dangers and the difficulty of closing the taps of data once those taps have been opened. Um, it shows both how it is much more convenient at a societal level to intervene as early on as possible and to create as many incentives as possible at the very beginning to prevent the chain of events and the cascade from happening, as well as the problematic nature of victimization. There are at least three layers of victimization. There's the layer of the service or company, if we're talking of an organization, of course, that is breached in the first place. There's the level of those individuals that are behind the data and information 
that were held by the company or the organization. And then there are those individuals that may be identified on a tertiary level as a result of that action. If you think of mules as both perpetrators and victims themselves of the cybercrime chain, then there could even be a fourth level victimization of vulnerable individuals that end up being caught in the complex ecosystem of cybercrime out of ignorance or out of sheer necessity, etc. But this is not something that we, we covered in the paper. The idea of the tipping points is indeed to show the residual advantages of intervening at each and every point and the kinds of victimizations that could be avoided by intervening at stage four as opposed to stage two as opposed to stage one, etc. It also, of course, highlights the limitedness of our categories of cybercrime, both as concepts that we use to study cybercrime as well as legal categories, substantive offences that are then applied and on the basis of which individuals are charged, uh, convicted and sentenced. Can you tell me a little bit about the research method that you used to sort of work through this? The idea was to use real life cases and particularly to study cases that had already gone through the courts because all materials would be available. Of course, the downside of this approach is that we could only study historical cases rather than contemporary cases. It takes a few years for each case to to be completed from arrest to to sentencing, when they even ever get there to that point. Um, So we could only use historical data. But we were very lucky. There are a few databases that are publicly available such as Alice Hatchkin's database or Michael Turner's database that provide information about cybercrimes that took place, particularly in the UK, which was the country that was the focus of our study. And what we did was to identify a very large pool of individuals to begin with, and then little by little focus on to those cases that had a series of features that we were interested in studying, such as indeed the presence, or at least potential presence of cloud and a data element, so that we could study the cascade. The point was we developed this cascade on the Talk Talk 2015 data breach, and that was a paradigmatic case. So we wanted to try and understand how common those features were beyond paradigmatic cases or famous, highly publicized data breaches. So we we ended up with a pool of about 101 convicted individuals, about 51 legal proceedings and 34 cases. And what we ended up studying in practice was a fraction of those because we were only able to access court materials for about 40% of those cases. We did have court records, court transcripts for about 40% of them, whereas court reports by newspapers were available on all of them because otherwise we would have not been able to know about those cases in the first place. So that also allows me to mention a challenge, of course, of studying cybercrime through court data. It very much depends on the country in which you find yourself, but at least in the UK, court data are transcribed by private actors. And in order to obtain a transcript, a very complex and time-consuming process of a double authorization has to be undertaken 
which takes a lot of time and a lot of money as well, in that the transcripts are not free. They they need to be paid for. Of course, the alternative is for the researcher to travel to each and every individual court, but that has its, its own drawbacks as well. So what we did with, this, with these materials was to study in practice uh, whether they reproduced the stages of the cascade that we had identified, both with the idea of confirming whether that conceptualization was useful as well as to add perhaps or refine more elements to the original study. And this is what indeed we ended up doing because we developed decision trees on the basis of these materials. And we were also able to highlight how motivation could play a role in which stages exactly would be involved in, in a given case and to perhaps try and predict how actors would behave in a given case. Our hope would have been to study just cases where we had a presence or a presumed presence of the cascade effect. But on account of the very limited number of sentencing remarks that we were able to acquire, we decided to study all of them. And that proved to be interesting anyway, because even in those cases where we couldn't find a cascade effect, we could nonetheless draw some conclusions. So it seems that the absence of cascade effect could actually point to the presence of organized crime-like group. For instance, in most cases where there, there wasn't a cascade effect, uh, we found indication that there were money mules, and those are usually taken to indicate that there is an organized crime structure. And as a result, it could be the case that whenever an organized criminal group is engaging in cybercrime, we wouldn't be observing any cascade effects because the group would not have any incentive in sharing the proceeds of crime or making that widely available in a way that could trigger the crime frenzy. Whereas the crime frenzy would really be the result of the disorganized and uh, open-ended nature of operating online through fora, through uh, cloud uh, systems, etc. That's interesting. The organized crime will not be televised. <laughs> What's next from, from here? How do you build on this research? Are you going to look more into the cascade effect or are you going to chase down some of the other leads that came up? Well, there are two potential directions. One, which I would hope would be uh, seeing the daylight uh, sometime soon, is a paper that is reporting on the legal contents of the sentencing remarks. So it would be more of a legal study into the, the way how courts sentenced individuals that we, we believed were connected with the cascade effect to try and understand whether the cascade effect could have a bearing on the criminal justice process. And in the end, the suggestion is that the cascade effect could actually be used as a way of conceptualizing, mitigating and aggravating factors so as to reach more equitable sentences, particularly because at the moment in the UK, as well as in other countries, there aren't sentencing guidelines, for instance, for the Computer Misuse Act. And the Fraud Act guidelines do not necessarily take into account the data dimension of cybercrimes. And another paper may document the data collection journey to point at the pros and cons of restraining access to transcripts for research purposes. This is a very complex question because there isn't one single standard across the globe for making data transcripts, court transcripts available to the public or to researchers in general. The move towards open data means that some countries have already begun making available 
transcripts, but sometimes in a way as to remove personal information, which is essential for, for instance, for criminologists to study cyber offenders, and as well as uh, for for lawyers to delve into some you know elements that may have a bearing on discrimination, etc. So there is a complex issue in and of its own. And that would be the end of the Cascade saga. I'm sure it will continue cascading on. Those are both very interesting pieces of work, I guess, both from a research perspective and from a research perspective. For research and for researchers, those are two very interesting sort of areas. You're bang on in saying that access to that data is important but also difficult. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Please come back when when the next thing's ready to be spoken about. I would be delighted to, Michael. Thanks so much for having me today and for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about this research and speaking alongside a very distinguished list of researchers. If you're involved in cyber, then you're often expected to answer questions on everything from how do magnets in storage media work, to whether internet services should be regulated like the telephone or like television services. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to pester an expert. And we happen to have cornered one on digital forensics. Dr. Joshua James is a trainer, lecturer and consultant for digital investigations and somehow, while training police officers and consulting for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, has managed to maintain a great blog and a YouTube channel both called dfir.science. Dr. James also tolerates my simple questions, so I'll take advantage of that and ask him this. Hey Joshua, I sent you a picture of my holidays. Guess where I am? Well, I don't have to guess, Michael. Why is that? Well, because all your personal information was in the picture. Why did you Why did you send me all of the information about your phone and location and time you took the picture? Why would you Why would you send me all that? That that that's all in the picture. Yeah. So you sent me JPEGs directly from your phone. So these JPEG images, which is pretty standard for phones to take a picture like that. Uh, your phone has extra information enabled that will embed some some details inside your images so that the fact that you sent them to me directly the messenger service we were using didn't strip any of that information out so i can uh, i can pretty much see exactly where you were and uh, what you were doing without even looking at the picture yeah so this is the difference i guess between data and metadata so in this image for example there's a file and that file is containing all of the data that makes up the picture right so the thing that we can see whenever we double click on that file is the image contents and that's uh, all those contents are being created from the data on the hard drive but then there's also something called metadata there's two different types and the type that you sent me here is application metadata so the application on your phone that created that image it embedded some extra information from your device like your camera's uh, make and model um, gps coordinates because you must have had your gps on at the time as well as the phone's time whenever you uh, uh, took the picture. So that application took all of that information and added it to your JPEG image in what's called a header, or specifically for JPEGs, XF information. And a lot of different applications actually do this. So uh, Office documents embed a lot of application metadata that keeps track of just extra information about the document itself. And that metadata is included with the contents of the image or file or whatever you're, you're dealing with. So yeah, whenever you share files, 
depending on the application that you use to create or modify it, it's going to include some of that application metadata. Uh, so you have to be a little bit careful about that, especially if you're sharing images about your family vacation with, with people. Now, a lot of uh, websites that are online, like, like Facebook, Twitter, they know about this application metadata and they will try to uh, remove it for you. So that way you're not leaking a bunch of information. They used to just allow it and then people actually started stalking people online. Um, knowing where they were located and knowing when they were away from home, and then they would go to their house, for example, and rob their house because um, they knew that they weren't they weren't in their home. So uh, this application metadata does cause some problems sometimes, especially with stalking and things like that, because you're essentially leaking quite a bit of information about yourself. Now, for investigations, it's also very useful because we might be able to find out, for example, that a certain picture was taken with a certain camera, and then go find that camera and, and find out how the camera was used. We might know where a suspect was at or a victim was at at a specific time, um, where in the image we might just have to guess. So we use all of that information, uh, but of course criminals also use it to try to do bad things as well. So keep track of your application metadata, especially in your family photos. What's the other kind of metadata? Yeah, so the second type of metadata that we deal with a lot is from the file system. So on your computer, you have a bunch of files, and those files... um, all the data in those files is kept track of by a file system. That file system also contains metadata about the file contents itself. So it essentially keeps all of that information in a separate database that's not included in the file. So application metadata will be included with your JPEG image, for example. But file system metadata contains things like um, uh, the file creation time, the file modification time, Um, Anything that you've done locally on your computer or your phone probably has some file system metadata. But whenever you share that file with me, I don't receive that file system metadata. So that is only local to your device. So as investigators, we can use that file system metadata to, for example, reconstruct what happened on somebody's computer. But whenever you're sharing a file on a, a messenger service or by email, you're not really going to share that file system metadata, but you will share the application metadata. So two different types, both are super useful for digital investigators, but one is more of a privacy concern uh, for the general public than than others are. Thank you again to Dr. Maria Grazia Pochala for that really interesting chat. I think the approach of putting data in the center of research is really compelling. Thank you as well to Dr. James for answering another question about digital forensics, and I look forward to being in a position where I can actually travel and take holiday snaps to send without the metadata attached to them. In the meantime, though, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find more about the show at cybercrimeology.com, and you can talk to me at cybercrimeology.com on Twitter.